This is the best damn podcast in the land. I'm your host, Brandon Morris, and we got some of my friends from all over the globe, Minnesota, Kenosha, Green Bay, De Pere, Paris, Wisconsin, um, and these guys are ready to roll. Got some great topics that we're going to be talking about tonight. Some of these guys play basketball. Some of these guys are coaching basketball. Um, we've just got a really colorful uh, group of fellas on the roster tonight. And with the starting lineup, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, we're going to start off with my man. I call him the basketball guru. He's a trivia guy. Johnny Eck, go ahead and introduce yourself. My man, Johnny Ack. Welcome, my brother. Appreciate you. Next up, Coach Say Young. Coach Say Young, third year with the Bradford basketball program, head JV basketball coach. Um, I also graduated from Bradford. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, Coach Young. Next up, my man, A. T, the big brother. What's up, fellas? Coach Turner from uh, White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Varsity assistant. Been uh, coaching for the last 10 years. Appreciate you, AT. Going down to the little brother, AC. Yeah, Adrian Turner, AC. Some of you might know me. Uh, you know, St. Joseph graduate 2007. Yes, sir. Uh, I've been coaching uh, basketball for about nine years and doing other sports, but uh, my last position was girls' varsity head coach at Holy Family Catholic. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. My man, Michael. Michael Holden, uh, fifth year at Bradford at the Mary D. Bradford High School in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm graduating in 2008. My man, Mike Holden, thanks for checking in. Appreciate it. Uh, Jason. Which one? Sorry, Tanisoff, go ahead. Uh, Jason Tanisoff, Prairie. Uh, 14 years with the program. Last nine as the head coach. Proud 01 St. Joe's grad with Brandon Morris. Yes, sir. Who I dominated in left hand give it up for three straight years at lunch. <laughs> That's old school right there. Y'all know nothing about left hand give it up. Jay Coke. Yeah, Jason Coker, uh, varsity head girls coach over St. Joe's. Getting ready to head into year three. I've uh, been coaching since 01 in Kenosha. Appreciate it. My man, C squared. Demo, thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Uh, Corey Shellshick, St. Norbert College, assistant men's coach. I'm entering my 10th year there. Prior to that, I was a varsity head coach at Menasha High School. I uh, was the youngest head varsity coach at the Division One level in the state of Wisconsin when I started. And prior to that, I was a varsity assistant and head freshman coach at Kenosha Tremper High School. Seymour High School, 
home of the state championship run, 2002. Home of the state championship, huh? Interesting. I don't even know what division Seymour plays in, by the way. For those of you guys that are listening on the podcast, if you never heard of Seymour, Wisconsin, when you look it up, if you don't find it, don't even come back to me. It's all right. Uh, my man, Craig Lee. <laughs> hey, St. Therese graduate back 1982. Oh, shit. Uh, been coaching over 30 years in Kenosha, the last seven at Kenosha Bradford. Excellent. Appreciate it. So, like I said, we got an amazing roster for you guys tonight. Uh, these fellas been around the game for a very long time. And they're still a part of the game of basketball. And uh, I'm so appreciative to have you guys on the podcast tonight. So let's go ahead and dig in to the questions right away. Right away, first question, let's jump it off. How do you handle players stating that they're going to score or average 25 to 30 points in college? Uh, what advice do you give those type of players? And with that type of mindset, are they recruitable? So right away, Corey, we're going to come to you. You're the college coach on here. When you hear that, or if you hear that from players, uh, what type of advice do you give them? Are they recruitable? Yeah, I mean, they might be. It depends on their mindset. I, I like the confidence. Um, it doesn't happen. There's nobody that averages 25 to 30 a game at the college level. Kevin Durant didn't do it. Mm. Uh, you know, Michael didn't do it. it. It just it doesn't happen. Twenty five to thirty at the NBA level is tough. Um, at the high school level, very tough. So does it happen real often? No. Um, maybe in some bad programs where you don't have a lot of other players around you. Um, but I do like I do like the confidence. Um, I'm a big believer in recruiting confident players. Uh, but I, I hope they understand just because they score twenty five thirty. If you give up 31, 32 on the other end, it's not going to serve you well at the college level. So you, you still, no matter how much you score on one end, you got to be able to play on the other end too. So when I when I look at the recruitable, it depends on the person, depends on their background, who they are. Um, is getting buckets all that matters to them, or does winning matter to them? There's a big difference between the two. So I think that would be probably the best way I can answer that one. Excellent, excellent. Uh, At. You're in Minnesota. You said you're an assistant coach. If you hear one of your players make that statement, what advice do you give those type of players? Well, I'm glad Corey brought up uh, Kevin Durant, you know, and Mike Beasley. Those are the two most uh, prolific scorers in the last probably 15 years in college basketball, and they didn't do it, you know? And so, like he said, confidence, um, that's huge. Confidence is huge, but at the same time, there's reality, you know? And the question I have for that kid immediately is, are you putting in the work to score 25 <laughs> in college? You know, it's impossible, dang near, but I'll, that means you have to beat the team to practice. You have to beat the coach to opening up the door. It should already be open as a player, right? And preparation comes with, our confidence comes with preparation, you know, and so you would hope that they are uh, putting in the work. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Jay Coker. Player comes to you, says, man, I'm about to average 25 to 30 points in college. That's what I want to do. What advice are you giving? Are they recruitable? 
Well, I'd be excited if they could, but reality, like uh, the previous coaches said, you know, it's pretty tough. I think uh, just at the high school level last year, 16, there were 16 boys that uh, in the state that averaged 25 or more, and I think three girls only uh, on the girls' side that averaged 25 or more. Uh, you know, the mentality is great, the desire for it, but are they actually putting in the work um, outside of practice? I think that's a common separation with a lot of players you know you get better as a team player in practice but are they are they putting the work outside of practice to enhance their game to give them a chance uh to maybe you know potentially score at that rate but i'm more concerned with having uh somebody's going to help me on both sides of the floor instead of one side appreciate that uh one more anybody want to die jump in in on this one we want to hear from one more greg leach we'll, we'll take yours So Coach Leach is 30 years in the game, but he's a little shy sometimes at the podcast. Uh, it's okay. I'm... I have something wrong with my uh, cursor. That's all. I was hitting it, but it wasn't doing anything. Okay. Uh, so I'd like to turn it around to high school kids because I had a kid about six years ago come to me and tell me that he wanted he wanted to uh, average 20 to 25. My first question to him was, how many shots do you need? And uh, you ask a kid that, unfortunately, kids are going to lean more towards quantity than quality. Mm -hmm. And I went through a scenario of how you could actually get um, 25 or 20 to 25 and not take an overabundance of shots. And I think a couple of keys in that formula, using your teammates and moving the basketball, because it's not AAU, you know, there's going to be help side defense. And I think more importantly, there's going to be coaches that if you've got that kind of talent that are going to be scouting and uh, they're going to come up with game plans against you. So it's great. You got that confidence in the summer, but you need to understand what makes basketball teams successful. And you got to understand that if you're sure we, you can isolate and we can get you buckets here and there, but you're not going to do it consistently over 36 minutes on your own. Um, and so you, you kind of walk through, hey, if you're using your teammates, you're getting quality shots, your shooting percentage is going to go up. You won't need as many shots to get to that number. And yet, and, and when you get to that point, now you got your teammates that are able to play with you um, and you're all sharing the basketball and uh, good things happen. I mean, you, you look at a lot of teams that, they do that and share the basketball, and kids understand that it's quality, not quantity. And um, there's a lot of success that way. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. Uh, AT. AC, you want to hit on it? Yeah. Can you hear me better now? Yep. All right. Cool. Um, yeah, I think style of play is, is uh, a big factor in that as well. You know, can you generate easy bites for yourself? And that's probably a team thing as well. You know, offensive boards, student pass lanes. If you could get two fast break steals, that's four points right there. You could get three offensive boards and uh, a couple of putbacks. Then how many times can you get to the line within flow, right? Averaging 25 probably not going to happen. But 
Yeah, you can get pumped easy one. You'll be good. Okay. Um, you were cutting in and out a little bit. I know you're uh, much further north up there in Minnesota. Um, and I, if you can, just put it in the chat box because I want to hear from you. I know you you've been around the game for a long time. Type that answer up in the chat box because I want to make sure that we get that on on the podcast. Um, so there there were some excellent answers. I mean, coaches, you guys are pointing out how many shots do you need to get those points? Uh, you know, how are you preparing? There's uh, reality that you're you're not likely to score that. Somebody mentioned uh Durant and, and Michael Beasley has been one of the best scorers around in the last 10 15 years and uh they haven't even averaged 25 to 30 points. Um a college coach recently told me that the player uh he was recruiting and he wants this player really bad. Um he's the, the kid told him that he wants to average 25 or 30 points. And he said he was blown away by it and he didn't know how to respond to it because he wants this kid really bad. However, uh, he, he would have to tell the kid that this might not be the school that, that, that's for you um, because we're top 25 in the country every year. Um, we just had five kids go Division One, and none of those players average 25 points. None of those players even average 20 points. As a matter of fact, the most that they averaged was 17 points. And I, th I think that speaks volumes, especially when you're talking about winning. And, and some of you guys touched on that. Uh, so we're going to move on to question two. Uh, we're going to give question two uh, to Michael Holden. Should, and we're going to let everybody chime in on this one because this, this one has been a hot topic uh, since it came out a couple weeks ago. Should college basketball players get paid uh, while they're on scholarship? Uh, and then is this a good thing for the game of basketball? Mike Holden, what, what do you think about that? It's a catch-22, I think. I think if you look at the model and the business of college basketball, some could argue yes, right? But I think as Coach Leach and I always have conversations about the bigger picture, um, on some levels, if you're getting a scholarship, aren't you getting paid for that quality education that you're providing if it's the full ride? Um, so I can see it going either way. Um, but on some levels, I do think there needs to be something for college basketball as the business aspect is gaining so much profit from it, whether that be you know providing for them educationally because, as we know, all colleges aren't able to get full scholarship. Um, so I think on some levels it just depends on the nature, but but – Long answer short, yes, college players should be compensated in some way, shape, or form. Uh, just like a yes or no answer, do you, is this, you think this is good for the game of basketball? I think it's great for the game of basketball. And it's great for the individuals playing the game of basketball as well. Okay. Uh, Coach Corey, we're going to come back to you, but uh, uh, Tanisoff, we're going to come to you. Yeah, I think um, if you're on scholarship, you obviously get an education paid for, and we're talking about a small group of players that can make money off their likeness. Um, I would be completely in favor of that. Um, if someone wants to take time and sign autographs or can 
uh, sell their jerseys or, or things like that, or even get a shoe contract. Um, I would not be opposed to them making money, but I don't think the colleges need to be directly paying them. Okay. Uh, said Young. Uh, great answers from every coach that already spoke. Um, I'd have to go with a third party. If it's a third party that's willing to give that money out to an individual, go ahead. Um, you're exploiting my name. My name's on the back of that jersey. Um, I know some colleges back then didn't do a lot of name jerseys, but I mean, it's, it's 2020 right now, and there's names on the back of those jerseys. So, uh, And then you go back to the NCAA the, uh, the video game, um, those players, those names were there. Pay me for that. So uh, uh, it's a catch twenty twenty, like Mike Holden said, but I'm okay for paying them as long as the third party. Okay, uh, Johnny A. Just uh, I'll do my thing and hit you guys with some trivia here. Obviously, Coach said was talking about the video games, and that kind of all stems off of the uh, Ed O'Bannon of the 95 UCLA National Championship Bruins starting that whole lawsuit. Um, but, you know, this just kind of breaks my mind. It's been going on for forever, you know, watching some of the 30 for 30s, like, say, on the Requiem for the Big East, you know, when those coaches got bigger and when Nike, you know, brands like Nike and Adidas started outfitting schools and the warm-up suits, the shoes, all the equipment, they become basically walking billboards for those companies. Yeah, they're not getting anything other than their academic scholarship, which some people would say enough. You know, I don't really have a complete one way or another thought on it. I just think it would be totally interesting to see how other, all the other dominoes fall if they would start paying athletes, how recruiting regulations would be changed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, hey, uh, Corey, go ahead. Absolutely great points by everybody. And I, I go back to what Michael said. Um, he said the catch 22. It's a tough, it's a tough deal. Um, where do you draw the line as an institution? What you pay, you know, what are, what are you going to pay? How are you going to pay it? How is it going to be regulated? Who is going to regulate it? Who's going to be paid to regulate it? Um, and then you have the flip side of it. Really, how many athletes are really marketable? Look in the NBA. There's 16 signature shoes. You know, how many people are really marketable in a market? So, to me, the NCAA passing the rule that you can make money off your own likeness outside of the video game money and jersey money, there's not really a big difference in what they're receiving now. The real question will be how shoe companies treat this and who they're going to really target. We're, we're, we're seeing the lawsuit now with Zion Williamson and the money offerings that were kind of pushed into him going to Duke, supposedly. I don't think there's any coincidence that the NCAA is pushing this this rules and regulations through with Duke now being in the news. They knew about this lawsuit before we did as a public. Um, so I think, I think, yes, I think every college athlete should have the right to make money on their own likeness. Absolutely. No question. I don't think the institution should be paying any more money than the money generated off of say jerseys, video games, those type of things, because they are already giving the scholarship. They already are giving the money. And really what that will do is it's going to create a greater divide between the power conferences, the mid-major conferences, those middle conferences, the low majors. Like a place like UWGB can't afford to give any more to their players than what they're giving right now. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't just throw UWGB out there. We Hey, we got – okay, you're right. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. you you went through it, and I've seen their budget. I know what they're at. I know, you know, it, it it's when you get to that stage, it's, it's where does it end? You know, yeah. what? How much money is Zion Williamson worth to a college? Yeah, you know, and, and how much are you going to pay him? And then what are you going to do when they start making more money than your faculty and your professors? And you know, they're, they're, where do you where do you draw the line? Look at look at the first cuts at UW system, where the three highest paid UW system employees, Paul Christ. Gary Alvarez, Greg Gard, first first uh, uh, voluntary payroll cuts. You know, so where do you draw the line? I agree. I think everybody should be making money. You should be allowed to make money on our likeness. We're in, a, we're in the United States of America. We should be able to make money. That's that's part of this society. But where where is it coming from? I don't know. And I don't know that that many players are that marketable to make money off their own likeness outside of a NCAA football game or basketball. Game. Interesting. Um, AC. Can you hear me now? I'm yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Coach. You know, it, it is tough to say that most players are marketable, but I know for myself personally, you know, I'm running into some players at AAU tournaments, and they will have, you know, I'll ask them, hey, do you want to help me out, help out at a camp? I'm getting paid as the head coach running this camp. I feel like I can throw them $200, $300 for showing up, you know, and, and running a couple of stations for me and such. So I think that would be probably the best place for those athletes because it could be any level, any sport, making money is off of attending camps, you know, helping run camps. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, AT. Yeah, so I just got a – I got a couple of things um, – you know, my first question would be, what would it look like, you know, um, as far as who's getting paid, how much they're getting paid, what schools are getting paid? Is it all the way? Is it anything under the NCAA title? So all the way to Division three down, are we paying those athletes or I don't know? I, you know, I don't know the research on that enough. And so um, or is it just the scholarship schools right now that are paying for, you know, like the D1, D2 NCAAs or, you know, where, and that's my first question is, what would it look like, you know? Uh, my second is, what about the Title IX? So does that mean that women's sports would get paid as well? Like, is it just athlete in general? Or so if we pay Zion Williams uh, whatever million, what would we pay uh What's her name out in Oregon? I can't think of her name right now. What does she get paid? And, you know, and um, so then conferences, like he, uh, Corey mentioned about conferences. Do we have different pay scales for different conferences? And if that's the case, how would you pay somebody in the SWAC compared to somebody in um, somebody in the ACC, so to say? And last but not least, I guess my other question would be, we're just talking basketball here, but football. What sports are going to carry the, the load? How are you going to break that portion off? A quarterback, is he going to get paid more than a point guard? Or is he, you know, is he going to get paid more than the lineman? Who knows? I don't know how it would look if we just go on individuals, players getting paid. And then uh, my last thing, I think, is some of the ownership when we're just talking basketball has to go on the NBA because – they all of a sudden put a rule in where you can't come straight out of high school no more, you know? And so does that go to 
So now they have a G League, and you can come into the G League and play, right? I, the one kid, the high schooler, is doing that now, which actually gives the the NCAA an out, if you ask me, because now it's like, hey, there's other options for you to go get paid as a athlete instead of be a student athlete who gets paid. So I don't know. I, I'm all over the place on that, but there's a lot of questions I have that need answers. Uh, Coker. Um, yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, personally, just being the, I think, uh, in the bulk of athletes in, that were in college uh, that were just average players compared to all the better ones, you know, I was across the country. I wasn't allowed to work um, during the season, and I couldn't go home. I was dead broke. I still worked on the, on the low. <laughs> uh, just so I had, I had enough, you know, just to take care of myself, get – get a, you know, 48 pack of ramen and stuff like that. Um, but I, you know, I, I do with the G league evolving, if you will, into this scenario, I feel like the NCAA has probably got to do something. Um, what that looks like, it sounds like maybe the easiest thing is, uh, what coach said, or, uh, coach said that earlier about a third party. So, I mean, if the kid's making money just off of, uh, his name and, and deals he's doing on the side, let it be. It is what it is, and then maybe the NCA can help out. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of athletes out there uh, that are attending school. They're under the requirement that they can't work. They're dead broke, um, and really, they're not looking for the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sure, they'll take it, but you know, a couple hundred bucks just so you can you can live your life outside of uh, the basketball court and the classroom. You know, that that go a long way. Uh, Greg, you got anything or said? Jason, who hasn't talked yet, Tanisov? I went. Um, It's just a complicated issue, Brandon, and and I don't know. I mean, so you pay them, but where's the ceiling? So the stakes can get raised and money just, it it just keeps going up. Um, One thing is I was listening to all these great points that popped into my head and I, w- I don't know how this would work either. I mean, this is such a complicated issue, but what if you had revenue sharing similar to baseball and you had a salary cap? Uh, I mean, again, it doesn't account for division, division one, division two, II, division three, and all the schools beneath. But um, I think that's probably one of the reasons why you'll never see it happen unless it's a likeness and it's something having something outside of the NCAA. Go ahead, Corey. And to, to follow up on that, GL, there actually is a little bit of a, a, that type of system already. So when you go to the NCAA tournament, so the Big Ten, the more bids you get in, the more of a profit sharing you have to share back with, like, say, the Big Ten. So in Division One, there's already kind of a pseudo type of model of that where there there is a little bit of profit sharing. Um, and then you've got the TV contracts, which are the other big portion. Uh, at the Division Two level, there's not – at Division Two and Division Three, really the NCAA loses money on those tournaments, so there's no profit sharing at the end. So, I, you know, I think, I think, like you said, I think that it, I think it's got to be a third party. I just I don't see a way that you could have an institution paying them, maybe outside of royalties on a jersey. But yeah, that yeah, you're ab- absolutely right, Gio. Anybody the, else? 
I have a question just to pose to the group. Yep. Uh, just to piggyback off of it, as you know, the world that we live in. If we op- if this happens, right? Um, if we get to this point, at some point it's going to trickle down um, to high school athletes, don't you think? They're going to say, "Hey, I, these schools are recruiting me. I want to get paid as well to to kind of win." Um, at what point do you say, "Hey, we're providing you a solid education as well"? Ooh, interesting. Anybody want to touch on that? Everybody's got great points right here. I just want to hear some uh, feedback and piggyback since we're talking this and then I'm going straight to number four. So just have it in the back of your heads. Um, when you're going to the G League, I'm going to number four question. I'm skipping it. Kind of that's based on the whole thing. Uh, Jalen Green. Um, I think one year they'll offer a player to forego college, if I'm not mistaken. A hundred from I think it's 150 G's to 500 G's. Where mm. so it is that goes back to the other coaches. Where's the cutoff point? Um, you know, where's that cutoff point for that player to get between 150 to 500 G's just to play in the G League? Interesting. So. Um... I mean, we like you guys continue to say that we heard some good points. Uh, this is about making money, jersey sales, video games. Uh, kids are on academic scholarships. Uh, you're making more money than it's possible. You can be making more money than the staff. Uh, you can make money at camps. What about Title IX? What's the scale? Is there a cap? So on and so forth. Um, I don't. I don't believe that. Schools would necessarily have to worry about playing, paying the players. I think it would come down to uh, when it comes down to endorsements, you have to look at the car dealerships uh, that are in those cities. You would have to look at uh, the stores that are the mom and pop stores that are in those cities, the restaurants, so on and so forth. It's really about those different businesses that can gain or make more money off of a player's likeness or image. So if you're doing a commercial, that's how I think college basketball players will be able to make money from it. I don't think it has to do anything with the college. The college is already doing enough by simply giving them a basketball scholarship. Uh, But when you talk about jersey sales, Maybe that's where Nike or whomever had to step in and endorse those players by a certain amount of jersey sales. So kind of like with the Nike contract uh, that they gave to Jordan. If you make more than $4 million in that first year, then you would get X amount of dollars or something along those lines. I don't think the college would have to worry about anything. This would not be on the college at all. It would be all of the folks on the outside. So just like a lot of those college coaches, they get the American Express endorsements. Uh, Some got the McDonald's endorsements, Sprite, so on and so forth. And I think that's going to trickle down to some of those players that are very marketable. There are guys that that are good-looking guys that can model and kind of make money off of them while they're in college sports and so on and so forth. Greg, you want to touch on that? Go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask you, what were the royalties on those two uniforms you got there? You still getting paid on that? Uh, actually, uh, I cannot disclose that until the year 2025. So we'll come back to that. 
And for those of you guys that are listening, the jerseys that he's referring to is one that's behind me. Uh, one is from Egypt. Uh, and then the other one is from UW Green Bay. Got the number 31 and the number 13. And yeah, um, the royalties are still rolling in. That's how this podcast is going. Anyways, on to number three, fellas. Uh, which it kind of brings us to uh, our sponsorship commercial. And this podcast is brought to you by nobody. Uh, so we're still working on sponsorships. And uh, yeah, that will come in uh, whenever it comes in. Uh, so we got a roughly about 10 to 13 minutes left in this first segment. Uh, so the last question we want to touch on, and then we may throw out the bonus question in there. How do you advise players when it comes to choosing a college? So much gets mixed up, confused, lost in translation when it talks about advising a player and what college they should maybe choose. Uh, how do you advise players when it comes to choosing a college? Johnny Ack. All right. So uh, most of my experience uh, with that would probably become when I was coach when I coached baseball in the summertime. Um, and I, the two main things I kind of look for: first off, academically, does that school or school that's looking at you or that you're looking at does it offer the academic program that you're that that interests you that you're looking to build a career off of? Um, athletically, um, is that is that school looking at you? In general, or are they do you, they have a specific need that you fill? So um, obviously, there's other factors that go into it. You know, location, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll leave it at that. Okay, uh, Jason Atanasoff. Yeah, um, we've had a handful of kids go on to play a um, couple Division One, couple Division Three. I always talk to them first about the coaching staff and the system. Um, as much as you might want to pick a school for their academics, uh, coming from Prairie, if you're going to play a sport, you're picking the coaching staff just as much, if not more. Um, style of play and then somewhere where you think you can be a contributor. And that depends on the kid. You know, is he hoping to be someone to, to go in and, and have an impact right away as a freshman or is it a kid who's grounded and maybe he's going to a really good program and might have to sit for a year or two and, and be a, a really good practice player and show his coaches what he can do that way. But um, style of play and coaching staff are the two things I always talk about with him. Excellent. Uh, AC. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, you're going to be going somewhere for possibly four years and you definitely want to be comfortable with the coaching staff. You for sure want to like where you are. You know, you're going somewhere for four years and, and not liking the campus, not liking the people around, the environment around you. It doesn't make for a happy life, you know, and, and in order to be able to focus, you want to be happy. You want to be happy. You don't want to have extra distractions from the locals. You don't want to have extra distractions from your, your coach. Man, this guy rubs me wrong every single time I walk in the gym. That's just a rough environment. So definitely want to make sure that coaching staff is what you like. And the culture is just the way that it needs to be. Plus the education. Can't forget the education. Excellent. Uh, Jason Coker. 
would say on, on the conversations that I've had, I really try to find out, you know, how, where do you want to live? What about the weather? How far away do you want to be? You know, do you want to be close enough that you can drive back and do the laundry over the weekend and get back? Or, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids are, think they're built for moving across the country and being on their own. Uh, and they, they generally hit uh, some type of shock, if you will. Uh, so trying to find out what the coaches said earlier, uh, along with those things as well, I think is, is just being you know due diligence on our part to try to help them find the right fit. Seth, how do you advise you know these players to choose a college? This is that, this is a difficult conversation to have for a lot of players, and you have a son that that will be possibly going off to college, possibly playing college basketball in the next three four years. Uh, how do you advise players? Um, great points, and you know what every coach said. Um, as far as what. Where my son's aspirations is, it's uh, it's all about academics and whether or not you're going to be coachable, um, like most of you guys said. Um, and then the atmosphere, um, how far do you want to be away from home? Um, then uh, from having a couple cousins go and play some ball at some tough colleges, um, one stands out for me. He said um, in his second year, and this, this just sits in the back of my head all the time, in his second year, the coach bought in another player um, that he liked more than me, and I was already a two-year starter. Um, that mindset, um, that mentality, um, whether you got or whether you want to continue to push yourself for the next two years while you're there. It's a four-year program. If you're going there, um, just having that ability to, you know, keep pushing forward, mm. whether or not that coach is bringing in that guy. So yep. you want to go to a spot where you're liked by that coach. Um, you like that coach and the system fits you. AT. Um, I would speak from experience, you know, uh, the last couple of years I've been blessed to coach with my brother and we've had players go to UConn and the Marquette. And then we've also had them go to smaller junior colleges and stuff like that. And our biggest one of our biggest questions or one of our biggest things when we're talking to these players are... Hold on, sorry to interrupt. You coach girls basketball or boys basketball? Girls, now I'm at boys. I'm on boys this last year, this past year. So and when you say you're sending those kids to UConn, are you talking about the one with the Huskies and uh, like Ray uh, Allen? Yes, yes. Diana Taurasi? Uh, if you let me finish... Okay. I can uh, go ahead. Going to UConn to play softball because <laughs> because uh, had offers in basketball, but wanted to go to UConn for softball. Right? That's excellent. And UConn. This most part of that experience of what I'm talking to you about is, and our other player went to Marquette to play lacrosse. Right? Wow. But, but they can hoop. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what the deciding factors was with them were, you know. They, they love the family environment, and so they love feeling like at home. So my question to players is, hey, does this feel like a family to you, you know? And when you can coach and control environments and locker rooms, you know, and you have a family environment, right, sometimes that's more uh, easier for a player to go. So the question is, are you going to go where you're wanted, or are you going to go and try to 
earn your way or carve a way out of a coach's heart that might not be as sold on you as you are on them or their program. Excellent. Uh, Michael. Just to um, piggyback, I think it was a bunch of great answers. I was talking to my guy, Q Young, from the Mary D. Rapper, who went to Whitewater. Talked about under... Do some research. Um, Don't just believe exactly what the coach says, but do your own research and go where you're wanted and go where where it matches your personality and where you're going to be successful. Um, Sometimes, unfortunately, in the world that we live in, you're sold... Um, a bunch of dreams and, and you have to do some research in them to make sure that they have your best interest at heart. Of course, they, they're going to want to win. Of course, they're, you know, you're going to get these promises, but making sure that the end result is for you to be successful in any recruiting situation, just making sure it's a good fit for the kid and not just for the school. Because um, the school will tell you to come there because, put, because of your potential, but it just may not work out for you. Excellent. So we got about two, three minutes left. Uh, Greg and Corey want to close us out. Corey? Yeah, well, you know, uh, both Coach Turner and Michael, uh, Coach Holden talked about it. Go where you wanted. Why why go somewhere to, you know, why are you recruiting them more than they're recruiting you as a player? Ooh. Um, You know, I've seen so many guys chase scholarships. I I coach at the D3 level um, where their experience isn't very good. They, they go out way out west. I'm not going to name schools because I would never want to knock a school. Um, but they go to these places where they're getting a $500 book scholarship. Well, you could go to Whitewater, Point, St. Norbert. You know, you can get a great experience, play in front of packed gyms, have your family see you every weekend, get that opportunity to see, you know, see what a great basketball environment is. Um, but never go somewhere where you have to recruit yourself to them. Uh, more than they're going to show love to you. If you're doing that, chances are you're going to get over. You're going to get recruited over, or it, it's just not going to be a great experience. You're just more of a practice dummy. And um, I, unfortunately, every year around Christmas time, I get ten to fifteen calls from kids that that's happened to, and we don't have space for them anymore. You know, they were already kind of fringe guys for us, and at that stage, I, there's nothing more we can do for them at that stage. You know, so. I, I always feel for kids because you only get one chance to really make the right decision. And if you don't get it right, it's really hard to make that second decision. Excellent. Greg, 30 seconds or less. Uh, I'll just, all great points, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. But the one thing that I would say, and Coach Holden touched on it, I think you have to match the, the player's personality to the city, to the culture, and the distance. Um, if if a kid is not going to make it out west, you know, four hours, three, four hours away, let him play somewhere close to home so that he can jump in the car in an hour and a half or two, get that fix he needs from his family if that's, you know, if he's close to them and he misses them. Let him stretch a little bit, and then maybe the following year, look to go somewhere else. But I think it's often overlooked, and we're looking to chase an unrealistic dream instead of instead of taking a real hard, close look at, will I fit my personality in that city? Great points. 
So those are some great points all the way around, fellas. As we close out on our first segment, just talking about how do you advise players. And I think that's one of the toughest roles that a lot of coaches and mentors, uh, that's one of the toughest roles that you play because sometimes uh, the best advice is to keep it all the way real with these players. And that's not always what the players want to hear. Uh, but this first segment was, I took a lot of notes. You guys gave some nuggets as always. We appreciate you guys. We're going to roll into our, our second segment of the podcast. And I think uh, we'll have some great, great conversations moving forward. Shout out to everybody that's on. We got Minnesota in the house, Green Bay, Paris, Wisconsin, Kenosha, Racine. Uh, I look forward to the second segment. Let's grab some drinks. Uh, all you old men, use the restroom, and uh, we'll be back for segment number two. This is the best damn podcast in the land. I'm your host, Brandon Morris. Welcome to the second segment of tonight's podcast. Uh, we have a few coaches from the Kenosha area, coaches from Racine, uh, coaches that are residing in Minnesota, and uh, someone way out in Paris, Wisconsin. It's out by I-94. I usually have to take a plane to get out there. Um, anyways, uh, we have some players, ex-players, and, and some coaches now that have been around the game for a very long time. A lot to contribute. In this second part of, of, of the podcast, we're going to take a little deeper dive talking about college sports, what it takes to be a college athlete, uh, some advice we're given, and then how the G League will affect uh, college sports. So right away, we're going to jump into this question uh, with Coach Corey. We're going to let you open this one up because you are the college basketball coach. Uh how will the G League affect high school basketball and college basketball? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's really going to change how business operates. Um, the NCAA hasn't changed a whole lot through players being able to jump right to the NBA. Um, it's still a very limited number of people that can get into this roster slot. Um, I do think it makes the NCAA look at themselves and reevaluate how they go about business. Um, but through the years, there's been one of the most steady uh, money makers in sports industry is the NCAA tournament. And I don't think the G League starting. I don't think a whole another version of the NCAA starting. I don't think anything's going to change that ex- short of a pandemic stopping the tournament. Um there's a few guarantees in life that are going to make money. It's the NCAA tournament, the Super Bowl. Um, you know, those those are the things that it, it, it just it won't happen a whole lot. Um, but I do think it makes you look at yourself. I do think as a high school, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to be more of a selling point for prep academies that have links and ties to these certain teams. Um, I do think it may... Uh, usher more transfers into the high school level um, where you're jumping schools, finding super teams, ways to get on nationally ranked teams to have more visibility for the NBA scouts, for the G League scouts. Um, and then the other part of it is we'll see how the G League handles uh, you 
know, playing a bunch of high schoolers, really, in essence. These guys are, are 19 years old, playing against a, a bunch of grown men that are, you know, have played a college career. Uh, they might get beat up on a little bit, no matter their talent level. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting, but I, I don't think it's going to change a whole lot of business for NCAA. Maybe a little bit, maybe take a guy or two away, but it's just like guys going overseas. You get maybe three or four guys that do that a year. Johnny Ack, what do you think? I just kind of like what Corey finished with. Uh, you know, there really just hasn't been a sample size yet, even with the like going to Europe for a year route. You know, I like the only guy I remember off the top of my mind is Brandon Jennings, obviously. And then, you know, Alex Antetokounmpo just announced he was doing the same thing, which, in my opinion, I think is smart just with all this COVID 19 stuff going on. Maybe things will open up a little bit quicker overseas than the U.S. That's just my opinion, but. Just kind of an interesting thought on that. So, Coker. So, Jason Coker's a little shy. Um, we're gonna give him some background music to join in on the i on the podcast tonight. That usually gets. Chicago Bulls fan going. He's on mute. Let me help him out. Coker will come back to you. Uh, Say Young. Uh, great points on previous coaches that already spoke about it. Um, I like the fact that um, I don't really think it's going to affect the high schools, but I do like the fact that Corey said um, we are going to start creating or seeing more of the super teams made in high school. Um, as far as, you know, will it affect colleges? Um, yeah, but then we go back to the fact that these players are exploited and they want to get paid. So they have an opportunity, just like every kid's dream in high school, or, hey, I'm going to college. I'm going to average 20 points a game, 25 points a game. Um, and then I'm going to sit, you know, do that one year, and I'm going to say I'm going to go into the league. Well, that one year, because you have to go to college for that one year, you can't go to, you know, the NBA straight out of high school anymore. Um, that one year and what dollar amount, what figure is that player going to be uh, expecting? Um, and the G League is a great opportunity for that to happen. Um, will I like it? No. Uh, I'd like to see a kid go to college, um, learn a game of basketball. Um, that should be every kid's dream, not just – you know, jump straight to the NBA. Um, AT, what do you got for this one? G League, will it affect high school basketball and college basketball? Uh, valid points by the coaches in front of me. Um, it will create more high school pipelines if, you know, this experience uh, experimental stage is a little more successful as far as these kids getting paid immediately out of high school, especially, uh, at, you know, you have your, you have your normal powerhouse high schools as is, but like in Minnesota, I know they're starting to become, there's three powerhouses right now. They're like in the top 25, depending on what poll you look at. And the kids are going to keep coming, keep going there. You know, uh, one of the, one of the kids, uh, he's, Deciding, I'm not going to put his name out there, but he's deciding whether to go through with his commitment to the college or if he's going to go G League. Uh, 
right? And uh, in the next couple weeks, we shall see what happens with that. But um, I feel like now that school is a powerhouse. And anybody, Ooh, I know who you're talking about. Can't say. You know, my sources told me to uh, keep that confidential, so I will. But um, if news comes out, you heard it here first, breaking. Oh, <laughs> On the You Can Be More <laughs> podcast, we heard it here first. <laughs> and so, uh, but ju- just know in the metro area, there are, uh, the metro area of Minneapolis, uh, the Twin City area, Minneapolis, St. Paul, there are schools who are already turning into powerhouses. And if the G League can start pulling some of those kids, I feel it would just create a bigger push to just go to those certain schools in certain areas that are already pushing kids that way. Interesting. Anybody else want to touch on this topic? Go ahead, AC. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that the G League is going to pull enough college potential D1 kids. You know, you got those those 1 through 10 guys that can go make money and they could probably play in the NBA or at least get some minutes in the NBA, make a rotation. They're, they can get some of those guys, but I, I don't know if they're going to get the four-star guys. I'm, I don't know if they're going to get the guys who who might be a really great athlete, might be a really good ball player, but can't quite get the grades, right? Like those guys would probably go overseas somewhere or maybe go G League and then try to uh, test the NBA waters. But mm. for the most part, I mean, every kid, I, I know myself personally, I didn't even want to play in the NBA growing up, but I wanted to play college basketball. I wanted to win a, a college basketball championship more than I wanted to be in the NBA. You know, and I, I feel like that's a lot of people that want to play for those coaches and such. You don't get quite the same media overseas or in the G League. You you get you just get your money. You know, you get your money, you get you get to play with older people. But that's about it. Mm. Jason, the tennis off. Um I think Zion last year at Duke was a great example of, of the hype that could happen even just playing one year of college basketball. You know, what would that have happened if he was in the G League? I don't know, but um I've thought for quite a while now, um, I don't know if you guys agree or not, I wish the NCAA, and maybe this will force their hand, would go to the baseball rule. Uh, you can come right out of high school if you think you're LeBron or Kobe, um, but if you go to college, you got to stay three years or until you're 21, whichever comes first. Um, I think college basketball, while they're still talented players, this, that, and whatever, um, it is watered down a little bit when you don't have those upperclassmen who have been in the program in the same system for two, three years. I'm talking, you know, power five conferences, obviously. Um, but throw that question out to you guys. Um, I think the baseball rule would fit perfectly for, for college basketball. Mm. Corey, go ahead. Yeah. So that, and coach a great, great point. Um, and those are set by the pro league. I really think the G league, route is a kind of a cop-out by the NBA to keep from having to, to get rid of the one-and-done rule because they're the ones that set the one-and-done rule. Um, MLB sets the, the three-and-done rule for NCAA. So either you come out as a high schooler or you go the JUCO route. But that, that comes from Major League Baseball. The NBA is from their players' associations uh, and, and, their, and their commissioners and their bargaining uh, uh, teams. And I, I really think the G League was set up to keep from having to make that decision and breaking that relationship with the NCAA. Um, obviously, there's conversation between both entities to make that decision, but I think this was their way of not of keeping everybody happy 
while giving an opportunity still to keep getting the best players at the NCAA level. And, you know, some of these other guys that are on the fringe, hey, come on over to the G League. We're going to pay you a bunch of money, and we're going to guarantee your college money. Mm, great point. Anybody else want to touch on that? How will the G League affect high school and college basketball? I think, obviously, everybody made great points. Um, for me, I think that the G League will affect high school basketball uh, to a certain degree, as well as college basketball, uh, simply because if you got high school basketball players that are those top 100 players, they're obviously uh, they're ranked top 100 in the country for a reason, and they all get to go. Or most of them get that invite to Portsmouth. For the ones that do have those good chances at Portsmouth, they know that it's only about 40 to 50 of those guys that are going to get pulled into the NBA draft or workouts. Probably half of those guys will stay on the NBA team, but they know that those other 25 players that aren't guaranteed are going to go to the G League. On top of that, all those kids that play at Portsmouth every year, they automatically, whether they have a good season or not, they have representation right there. So agents are all the way around talking. A lot of them are going to be pushing them to go to the G League because that opportunity is there. And because that opportunity is there, um, I think a lot of high school kids are going to take that. They're going to take advantage of that because. There's a lot of these kids that come from economically disadvantaged homes and lifestyles. And you hear it now more than ever, college isn't for everybody. When you got YouTubers and Instagram models and so on and so forth, college just ain't for everybody. You can make money like uh, the kid from Tremper, Tristan Jazz. He, he's, he didn't even, he's not even going to go to college. He's making his money. So guys that still can play the game they love and get paid in the G League, which basically makes it seem like, dude, I'm in, I'm in the NBA. Um, and then, like you guys said, there's going to be those super teams that are built, but more in those metro cities. So the Chicago's, the Minneapolis's, Houston, Texas, Atlanta's. They're going to get a lot of people moving to those cities. And trying to get on so that they have a better shot to get to the G League, which they think will get them closer to the D League. I mean, to the NBA and the G League, maybe 10 years ago, they weren't paying good money. The top player in the in the D League was making thirty five thousand for the season. Now, they got a home and a vehicle and they, they pay for meals and that type of thing, but they only get. The A-level players were getting paid thirty-five thousand. Now it's t it's totally different. Uh, they also took away the fact that they can go straight from high school to the G League because the G League was losing a lot of players to Europe. So that's I don't know if you guys know about the whole dual uh, tag or the NBA tag that they put on a lot of those players, where. It, Okay, we draft you into the NBA, but we put you on a G League team. But you can't go to Europe and play. You have to stay on the G League team. And that's why they start playing players more. So I think it's I think it's more attractive to a lot of 
uh, high school players and then college players as well. Um, but I think it's going to affect college basketball in a good way. And what I mean by that, there's going to be players that wouldn't necessarily get scholarships that probably are going to have more opportunities at scholarships now because a lot of those players that are going to the G League would have taken up a scholarship spot. So some players that were on the fence, they will get that scholarship that maybe they didn't have a chance. And I think it's going to make college coaches' jobs uh, a lot more tougher on one end, but then also uh, they're going to have a, a, a wider spectrum of players to pull from. So I think it's going to be very interesting in the next interesting in the next three or four years to see how this really plays into effect and to see if these high school players can even produce it in the G League. I strongly believe that a lot of those kids just won't be ready for it. Um, on to the next question. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew about this, but the UW schools will no longer require ACTs and SATs uh, scores during the next two years because of the pandemic. However, Marquette University, they made this decision back in 2019, which I was surprised. Actually, I wasn't surprised. Uh, and they made that as a permanent decision, not just for the next two years. If you guys pay attention to college enrollment, which we have somebody that's in the admissions office, the, the enrollment for colleges all over the country has went down drastically. Okay, They're, the ACT scores affect a lot of kids and uh, FAFSA forms, just filling those out affect a lot of kids. So the enrollment just went down, plus the tuition. Um, and that's why they came out with that decision, Marquette. says, look, we're going to get rid of this. Uh, so how would this affect the recruiting process? Uh, and, and on top of that, if this had been in effect in the 90s, would we have seen more college basketball players from the Kenosha Racine, Milwaukee area? I'm going to let the college admissions guy jump in on this because he's a part of that directly. Well, you know, Brandon, the just because the institution doesn't require the ACT, SAT doesn't mean the NCAA doesn't require it. So Ooh. as of right now, the NCAA still requires ACT, SAT sliding scores with the GPA. Um, and based on right now, their current standards, you have to complete 16 core classes uh, with your with your high school degree that have to be NCAA certified at a 2.3 GPA level or above to be an academically eligible athlete at the Division One level. So actually, I think what this is doing is opening more doors to students to larger institutions. It may dissuade kids from playing Division Three basketball, Division Two basketball, mm. because they now have an opportunity to go to a UW Madison, a, a Marquette University. Instead of going to say UW Parkside where I went, or or UW Green Bay, or you know the smaller institutions that you know you have uh, you know a little bit less of a social life, um, but uh, I think in the '90s, really comparatively, you would in the '90s you had Prop 48, which Dwayne Wade was a member of. That there was a few players that I had worked with at Parkside that had the same deal, and 
you had certain roster exemptions for those players where there was no academic standard you could get them in, and then they had to meet certain standards when they got to college. So I don't think it would have changed how many kids play college basketball, but I do think it changed how many kids can go to college Ooh, in general. Um, and I think I think this has opened more doors for people that look like us to go to college, to have an opportunity um, at some of these larger institutions that have a, a higher billing. Um, I do worry that they're going to weigh GPAs and compare high school. So they might compare, say, a, a Seymour High School differently than they compare, a, you know, a Bayport High School, which is a suburban, very rich suburb of Green Bay. They may compare those schools very differently in their GPAs. While Seymour is not as good of a school academically as, as say, Bayport, well, how, how are we going to, to discern that as an admissions company, you know, a committee going through? But I don't think it changes the college basketball landscape at all right now. It could change soon, but right now, not. Wow. Anybody else want to come after that? Obviously, he's knee-deep in admissions <laughs> and, and, and can speak to that. Uh, no one? Bueller? Bueller? So I will say this. I thought it would affect the recruiting process uh, before Corey gave us those tips simply because if the UW schools are just doing away with the SATs and the ACTs, there are, again, are more kids that could qualify to be going to UW-Madison. It's extremely hard to get in there when you're talking about a guy like me. Um, getting an ACT score of a 26, that's tough. That's tough. Um, and then... If this was dropped and it was the 90s, I strongly feel for whatever reasons. And let's see. Let's say that the uh, it's a perfect world and the NCAA agreed with this. I see a lot more kids getting college scholarships and playing college basketball uh, because we we had a great segment last night talking about this all time Kenosha list of, of best players ever. A lot of players that maybe didn't get mentioned or a lot of players that didn't go off to college or a lot of players that didn't have that high, high, successful high school career. They weren't on that list and therefore didn't go to college. But a lot had to do with those ACT scores because you didn't get a high enough ACT score. Shit, you was like, my parents don't have the money. I can't I, can't, I don't want to pay for college and Prop 48. No, I'm I'm not about to sit out a whole year and not play basketball when that's all I know to do. You mean you mean to tell me I got I mean I got to focus on just schooling? I can't hoop. This is what I came here to do. So I think if that rule was in there and NCAA accepted it, I think in the '90s there would have been a lot of players playing all over the place. Even if even if all those players just went to junior college basketball, I think they would have been taking that chance because the ACTs are out of there. And st excuse me, statistically, when you look at it in those urban neighborhoods, a lot of black and brown players who, who play basketball, uh, statistically, it shows that they're not good test takers. ACT, four hours. <laughs> Trust me, I only got uh, 18, I think, on my ACT or 17. 
that was a tough test. And whether we took it seriously or not, a lot of players just don't get through that ACT. But they do have the talent to play at the next level. Um, so I think that would have changed the game. And, and, and that's just me. I don't know. Uh, now, it just came out, and I know all you guys can speak to this. They're going to do away with the fact that there was, they voted on the, the shot clock. There's going to be no shot clocks in high school basketball. I know a lot of coaches probably voted for the uh, shot clock. And I remember playing my high school season, triple overtime, 31-30. Triple overtime, 31-30. That was definitely, uh, we, we put out a petition to, to have the shot clock. So, yep, Union Grove, see, he remembers. Uh, what, how do you guys feel about that? Should varsity basketball have the shot clock? And don't talk about people getting paid and running the shot clock. Should varsity basketball have a shot clock? Anybody want to speak on that? Go ahead, Johnny. I'll just go pretty quick here. We kind of talked about this a little bit in our little group chat earlier today. And uh, the common idea was just that offensively it would be very ugly. You'd see some young kids taking some very bad shots out of system because you kind of have to beat the clock. Um, Coach Leach made a good point. I don't mean to steal your thunder if you're going to add this, but Coach Leach made a good point in that group text. He said, but you could you could do a lot to create chaos on defense. Mm. Uh, Tanisoff? Yeah, um, I saw both points of it from the, the coaching side and the AD side. Um, I can only speak for us. I, we voted for it. We'd be all in favor for it just because of the style of play. Um, you know, I think that a couple years ago we beat – the top-ranked team and the fourth-ranked team, uh, Destiny and MAS, and then played the third-ranked team, Ron Colley. And uh, we got – I mean, they, they – I think they had six possessions of 90 seconds or more. And oh, we ended up – we shot three for 22 from three. We lived and died by that. But um, I think even if it was 40 seconds, you know, just keep the game moving. Um I would be totally in favor of it, uh, only at the varsity level. A.T. Uh, I would let, I'm going to let Adrian go first on this. Okay. And then I'll I follow up after him. Okay. A.C., what do you got? Um, this has been a big topic in Minnesota because there's been teams that were down and they would stall to make sure the other team didn't get the ball back. And, you know, defensively, the team that was winning was sitting in a 2-3 or a 3-2, and they weren't going to punch. So they're winning. They won't come out, and the other team's not attacking. They're like, hey, if you want to beat us by 40, you're going to have to come guard us in man-to-man, or at least put some pressure on us. Mm. So I like, what, I like what he said about, you know, Coach Lee saying that it can cause some havoc defensively, and it can. Late in the shot clock, you can do some really good things to, to some offenses. But at the same time, the way that my team plays, it's almost as if I have a shot clock already, you know. And hey, I, I, I like it that way because it, it gives the kids, it gives the kids some confidence, you know. It's like, hey, 
are, are we running pick and rolls? Are they going under the screen? Yes. Is it a good shot? Yes. Can you hit that shot? Yes. Let's let's play ball. You know, and so I, it, it makes for a much more fun game in my mind, even even with a shot clock. It could be forty seconds. Forty seconds is a long time to not find a quality shot. Like, what is the other team that much better than us de- uh, on their defensive side where we can't find a good shot in forty seconds? Somebody's not attacking. We, we must have people out there that aren't quite looking to be uh, aggressive, you know? Go ahead, AT. Okay, following up. So, I was Adrian's offensive coach, right? So, this uh, – So, wait a minute. You guys have an offense and a defensive coach? Well, <laughs> as far as practice goes, you know, yep. like – I, I pretty much ran his offense, whatever he wants to say, whatever. Anyways, um, we love the shot clock. I, I love the shot clock idea because, A, I'm all about preparing, right? And I feel like it, it forces coaches to be better coaches, right? We have to get quality shots, and we have to prepare the kids also to go play on the next level, right? Ooh, and good point. We, and if we have schemes and we're playing at a, at a pace where I'm not preparing this kid – to play on the next level, but also where everybody on the court is a threat, right? I'm not preparing them for what basketball is now evolving to. Everybody is a threat now in basketball. There's no more, hey, you're just a, a screener. I mean, we get that with limited uh, players and limited time as a varsity coach, but if we can prepare and, and, and you know, uh, evolve as coaches we can figure out ways better ways to make everybody a threat that's on the court put them in position to score right yeah and therefore we can push the tempo and the other thing is i think defense if it's more hectic and if we get stuck in a shot clock i think it will lead to more buckets defensively too you know you apply pressure it's going to lead to a quicker game anyway one way or the other so that's all i got (laughs) Greg. Yeah, so I saw I saw a study it, when there were shot clocks in different uh, states for high school, and the average winning score, winning losing score in California, who had a shot clock, was fifty nine forty two, and in Wisconsin that same year it was fifty five forty, and so <clears throat> the gist of that article was. The shot clock really probably isn't going to change the game that much. Mm. So all of the coaches that may be afraid of it, um, unless you're really truly limited and you're looking to hold the ball, it's probably not going to affect you. Uh, I take a look at my team last year. We had 18 wins, and I would I would say a very few amount of percentages or percentage of our. Uh, offensive possessions that we come down and hold the ball for more than 35, 40 seconds. Um, it just just didn't happen. That's not the way the game is played any longer. I, I, overall, I know that there are some teams out there um, that will do that to you, whether it's in the tournament um, or maybe in the course of a season you hit them once. Um, but it's just I, – I watched – funny story, six years ago I watched my kids play video games. Uh, basketball, and if they threw, if they passed to a teammate before a shot, um, I was surprised. <laughs> it's just the kids don't kids don't play that way. They're looking to be aggressive, as Coach said, um, and I think it's 
I was afraid and still am afraid a little bit of having kids that aren't skilled enough and may have the ball land in their hands at the end of the shot clock. And you'll probably see some ugly looking things, but it's, uh, I've kind of changed my view on it. I don't see it as that bad of a thing. I think it would be really exciting defensively. I think, um, you could do a lot of different things, whether it's at the beginning of the shot clock or at the end of the shot clock to take teams out of rhythms, out of their rhythm and make changes. I think it would be, I think it would really be a lot of fun, a lot of fun to coach. And it would challenge, as uh, coach said, it would challenge you to be better at your craft. Ooh, I have heard that quite a bit. Coker, your team has a lot of possessions this year. You guys scored a lot of points. What do you think about the shot clock? Uh, well, I would say I wouldn't care either way until I would be the team that's on the other end uh, where the opposing team is holding the ball for six possessions at 90 seconds a crack. That's insane. Yeah. Um, I'd be all for it. Uh, pace and space is our game. Uh, no matter, you know, the roster we have right now or moving forward. But uh, I think that's just kind of the, the way the game is played overall. Um, sure, you, you do have some of the traditional old school uh, half court programs, but overall pace and space shot clock really helps that helps that. And I like, uh, coach Greg's, uh, uh, suggestion too defensively though. I never thought about it like that the whole time when I thought shot clock, I thought offensively. So mm. great, great point on that. Mm. Uh, Corey, you obviously <laughs> coach every day in practice with the shot clock on. I can imagine, uh, you're obviously coaching in games with the shot clock. You've coached at the high school level, and now you're coaching at the college level. Is there a difference? What's the what's the beauty of it? Just talk a little bit about the shot clock. I see a difference. I mean, at the college level, even going from 35 seconds, I've been a part of when it went from 35 seconds to 30 seconds, that completely changed. I wouldn't say completely changed, but it changed how we ran things offensively a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything had to be a step quicker, get into it. Um, when we go overseas and play, we'll play at the 24-second shot clock, and that changes everything. I mean, you're talking taking shaving, you know, another six seconds off the shot clock. That changes everything. Um, I don't think high school players are ready for that type of pace. Um, also, as a high school player, we played against Adams Friendship in the Division II semifinals. Oh, my goodness. Where they came down. And, and they were 18, 20 passes of possession. And, and we, we still were in a game where we won, it was, I think it was like 28, 27 or something. Where, and then they were 1-3-1 one, one zone. So they made you pass it a lot, work it a lot. They are tall. Um, so you had – I've been on both ends where I coach against Grinnell, who you can throw the shot clock out the window. It doesn't matter. They're getting a three up within seven seconds. So – I, I think shot clock would be a cool thing to see at the high school level. I think it adds more um, more strategy, late clock, like GL was saying. Um, you know, I love it defensively. I love that we're able to maybe switch some ball screens at the end of the shot clock. Maybe we blitz a ball screen at the shot clock. Um, it also has a team now I'm seeing where teams have gotten away from resetting, right? So you get into offense. There's no more of the old Milwaukee Vincent style, right? BMO, when we, we played, Milwaukee Vincent was the team. Yep. But if they got up by six, they sat on the ball. Yep. And they sat on it for the entire game. They but, probably would have beat everybody playing a regular game too, but they would have went out they go out to their four corners and, and you're chasing a bunch of division one guards around. It's hard to hard to beat that. And I think what it does is it makes you play. It yeah. makes you have to create possessions in the game. 
Um, no matter what the rules are, it doesn't matter. You got to win anyway. It don't matter. I, I don't care whether you have a shot clock or not. But I do think it, it makes you do some different things defensively, offensively. And as a fan watching high school games, I hate going to places that don't have a shot clock, which is almost everywhere. So I love going to watch the shot clock game because it, it just the flow is better. So just with uh, with your freshmen, do you see them having a tougher time transitioning, having that shot clock, like like that mental lapse where they just totally forget that the shot clock is there? Yeah, especially our point guards. Because, you know, you know as well as I do be, uh, being point guards, your job is to manage the clock. You need to know the clock, the, the time score, um, and there's always at least a few times in that first month that a freshman point guard will be on the floor and we get a shot clock violation just because they're not aware of seeing the clock. And we make sure we hammer that home. Um, and our point guards that are out, if they're not counting at the same time with the point guards on the floor, that that's not a good thing for them either in practice. So it's really, it's an adjustment. It really is. I would love to see the shot clock just for college adjustment because, I think that would help high school players adjust to the college level quicker. Um, I don't think they ever realize how fast you have to play, say, an emotion offense or even a ball screen continuity. You've got to get the ball up in a hurry. You can't walk the ball up past half court. You have to get the ball, outlet it, make or miss. You can't sit and pout that your guy scored on you. we got to get it up and go. We can't, we can't play around. You know, My thing is we run a motion offense, and uh, we – we have a lot of dribble drive principles with it, but we do a lot of screening, a lot of random movement. And my thing is we need our first ball reversal by the time we have 24 seconds on the shot clock. That's our first ball reversal. If we don't have it by then, we're going to be fighting the shot clock at the end of the possession. And, you know, like I went back to where I said teams would reset, you know, when we don't have a shot clock. Now it's, we're not resetting to set a ball screen. No, just play your action and keep rolling. Mm. You know, and, and just, just play your action out, and whatever happens, at some point you got to make a play one-on-one sometimes. Okay. I want to hear from all of you guys, like with 30 seconds or less. Coach Elise, did you want to add something? Just real quick. I think our game offensively has evolved to this. Um, this is what it's built for. Kids want to run, push the ball, fast break. We're running dribble drive, kick, shoot threes. We're running screen and rolls. Um, I think as the game has evolved offensively, we're – we're, we're moving towards that point. I think it would be a uh, not an easy transition, but it's something that uh, might be coming down the road. At least we would be ready for it in, in those aspects. Makes sense. Um, so I want to I wanna ask all of you guys, and just in 30 seconds or less, um, what's your coaching style? But before we get to that one, What's your philosophy on three-point shooting? Uh, we're going to go with Mike Holden. So I think the game has evolved. I think, um, it, obviously, as all of you guys know, it depends on team. But, I mean, I'm, if, if it's there, it's a good look, and you're a good shooter, shoot it. Okay. Uh, I think we were at the Case game last year, and one of our players was on fire. Um, and the K's fans were saying, get to him because shooters shoot. Mm. Um, so, so just understanding that, I think it's just the way the game has evolved, that three-point shooting has to be embraced by coaches. I, I remember early on back in the 80s or 90s, I don't even know why I can say 80s, but early 90s, that three-point shooting was not really embraced as coaching. Yeah. 
Um, but but I embrace it. I love it um, as long as the right person taking the right shot. Uh, AC. Uh, we we put them up, but most of the time it's got to be through a paint touch. Some some type of reverse pass, pass or a drive and a kick, you know. Okay. Um, you'll rarely see us swing the ball around the perimeter for a three without there being a, any type of dribble penetration. Uh, like Aaron was saying, we run the pistol, so we're definitely getting getting a lot of looks off of the three-point line. And I mean, we drill it in practice. We, we, we take shots off of the dribble and we take shots off catch and shoot, so there it is. Uh, a tennis off. Yeah, we changed early on. Uh, we had the six seven, two hundred ninety pound kid played at Lake Forest and Concordia, so we'd walk the ball up and wait for him to get on the block. But last five six years, I mean, we we write it on the board before every game. Let it fly is one of the things. Uh, we are kind of known to live and die by the three, and we've had success with it. Unfortunately, in that sectional final a couple of years ago, you go three for twenty two, you're not going to win many games, but. Um, we like it to be off the pass, but we talk about the first good look, and a lot of times for us, that's that's a three, specifically the corner three, as Brandon knows. Quentin Stafford, <laughs> Jay Coker. Yeah, uh, I'd have to say if you can make it, take it. Uh, my girls, my girls, let it fly. Um, nice to hear the dribble drives being ran up in Minnesota as well. But uh, taking advantage of, of, of you know, give it. I, I think it's, it has to do with confidence as a coach. If you instill confidence in your players, you can kind of feed off of that. Um, there's some girls that can make it, but they they know if they can take it or not. So we kind of do uh, you know, our 20 minute drill, and based off of what they make, uh, if they if they hit a certain mark, and they're they're eligible to shoot a specific amount of threes in games. Okay, uh, at. is try to win the game from free throw line to free throw line. So if we can push that ball without a drip, without a dribble, get up in front of the ball, run the floor, and we can get that ball from free throw line to free throw line before you're getting back on D, then we have a better opportunity to put more pressure on the rim, you know? And obviously we run a nice secondary that goes right into the pistol. But uh, it's... Our our philosophy is beat you free throw line to free throw line. That's our philosophy. Uh, Coach Leach. Um, I've kind of come full circle, kicking and screaming when it comes to the three-point line because I first started out my career without uh, a three-point line when I was playing. And oh. when I was coaching as well, um, the one thing I, I I like it now, which may be a, a surprise to Adrian, but um, I, I go back. You still have to be able to play another part of the game. I watched uh, a St. Joe's girls team get to the uh, either the state semifinals or finals and lose. I mean, they went through the whole season. That's what they did. They shot threes. Uh, unfortunately, that had become so much part of who they were that they continued to shoot those threes. Mm. Ended up losing the game, uh, and there was there was nothing to, to fall back on. Um, and it was, the comment was made, hey, this is how we got here. This is how we're going to go out. 
<laughs> but I think it'd be nice to be balanced. You'd be able to, if you have that capacity to throw the ball inside, get an easy bucket. Maybe it's on the fast break. It's on a post up. Get fouled. Get to the line. I mean, shooting threes all day long, you're taking out a big part of the game, which is driving, attacking, getting fouled, getting to the line, getting and ones. I think you got to be able to do both if you're going to if you're going to get to the highest level and succeed. Anybody else want to add to that? Johnny Yak, go ahead. You're a three-point so, shooter. Um, you know, growing up, three-point shooting was probably my only standout strength. So I love teaching shooting form and, you know, getting repetitions up and things like that and just noticing kids at the freshman level who might have a pretty decent stroke. Um, but just, I forgot who said it earlier, but instilling confidence in the kids. Uh, you know, getting reps up in practice. You know, but if I think you're a kid that should – you know, that would be stronger playing in the paint or whatever, then we'll work on that too. But one of the couple of the main things I like to stress is, uh, you know, if it's a good shot, as in we're not just dribbling the ball down and chucking it up. One of the things I really like that I feel like is kind of a lost art is getting an open three off of a post entry and relocate. A lot of kids will enter in the, I mean, if I get a kid to enter the post, I get excited off of that, but then they might just stand there. It's like, hey, more times than not, your man is going to double down, slide over to the corner just a little bit or to the, you know, towards the top, and you're going to be wide open, get your feet set, and be ready to shoot that thing. You know, and I, I just love it at the freshman level. I had a kid this year, loves to shoot it, came out, started a game against Case, I think, hit three threes in a row. That puts a smile on your face, obviously on his face too, but it gets the team going. So if you're ready to shoot the ball and your feet are set, I'm all for it. Corey, go ahead. Great, great points. Um, I think what we talk with our guys, we stress take open good ones. You have to earn the right to shoot those shots. So you you have to prove in practice through your work, through putting up the time, that you have got to make sure that you put in the time to get those shots up. Um, I do think at some point we're going to see the three-point line move back because players are better shooters now than, you know, they're they're just getting that time to be able to do that. We're seeing more and more kids that can shoot the ball. you know, one of the things I was on a webinar last night through the WBCA with, and Coach Shaka Smart was talking about, you know, the NBA talks about analytics. Either it's a layup or a three-pointer. You don't want the mid-range game. And he talked about it depends on the player. If a layup's a good shot for the player, great. That's the only shot he should take. If the mid-range is a good shot for a player, then that should be the only shot they take. So analytics are good. Um, the three-point line is great. If we're open, we're hunting it, we're knocking it down if it's the right player in the right moment. Um, you got to always know your time and score, too. You're up seven with a minute left and think you got to take a one-pass three, we might have to have a conversation, too. So, um, But I think the three-point shot has changed basketball. It's continuing to change basketball. It's changing spacing and how we look at things offensively. And I think it's changed how we defend, too. Um, I think we put more emphasis on ball pressure in the half court than we ever have before and really emphasizing scouting and getting the high hands and really bothering shooters. Um, because it, it, if you don't do that, you're going to be in a hole in a hurry. Uh, AT, you're a three-point shooter. What's your philosophy on shooting threes? If you can see it around, shoot it. No, I'm just playing. Um <laughs> no, uh, my philosophy, honestly, is, is really weird because it's changed. It used to be uh, any daylight, 
is a good shot. But mm-hmm. now that I coach and I I like a little more control, it's um it really does depend on who's shooting the shot, the three point shot. Like there are people, uh Shaka Smart, obviously one of the best. Uh I like his uh I like his uh standpoint on it because if I have a big man out there that's only shooting fifteen percent I feel if he shoots that shot, we had a bad possession, you know, and there's things called quality of possessions and that wouldn't be a quality possession. That would be dang near a turnover. If he's out there standing out there shooting threes every time he touches the ball or in our case in high school, there's no shot clock. So there would be no reason for him to shoot that ball. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. My philosophy is if, if you put in the work, once again, what I've been pushing all day, if you put in the work and, you know, you prepare yourself and you can shoot that shot, it's a good shot. If That's my philosophy. Excellent. Uh, AC, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just, just to touch on it a little bit more. Um, the situation I walked into as a head coach, the person that was there before me, they won college coaching awards and such for their style of play, but they – they did not push the ball at all. Like the word was, was that if they ran the floor in transition, they had to run sprints the next practice. We get the rebound, we walk it up. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm working with kids who are used to stuffing it in the post over and over and over again. And, and you know, a couple of our first workouts, I'm watching this kid and she's got the ball and I'm like, hey, can you not hit a three? And all the girls are like, yeah, she can shoot. Like, what is the problem? <laughs> you know, yeah. like you put that shot up because it's in rhythm. The defense will never guard you. They will double team our post players if you don't put this up, you know? And so kids know who they are. Every once in a while, as as a coach, you will have to pull the kid out like, you can't keep doing this. And then it should be fixed. If it's not, Dr. Bench fixes a lot of issues. Dr. Bench gets it done, you know? Dr. Um, Bench. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Bench. That's what my baseball coach used to call it. But other than that, I mean, my, my squad, we put up 25 to 30 a game, and some games we'll hit six. But it's, it's still the pressure that we're putting on the defense with the pace. And some games we'll hit 13, you know. So it, it is what it is when you don't have post players sometimes. Excellent, excellent. Um, so one last question uh, before we close out this segment. Each one of you guys – We'll get a chance because all of you guys are from the area and know players uh, from Kenosha. Uh, name one player who you think is the best of the best. So we have two, four, six, eight, nine of you guys on here. You can't name the same player that somebody already named before you. Uh, so name one player that you would consider the best of the best. Uh, and we're going to start off with Michael Holden. I'm going to get mine out of the way before somebody take it. Um, didn't get to see him play, but did a lot of research. Obviously, Nick Van Exel. Okay. That's a stretch, but okay, we'll put him down. Nick Van Exel. Uh, <laughs> uh, AC. Uh, that's that's tough. Uh, 
I'm going to take two because my dad always used to talk about this. He used to say, uh, Abdul Jalini. I don't know if you guys have seen him play. Well, I know us younger ones have not. <laughs> but Abdul Jalini. And then the, the one person who I used to love growing up against, uh, Ricky Washington. Abdulli Jelani and Ricky Washington. Uh, Johnny Ack. I'll go ahead. Uh, I'll just name a couple really quick. A little couple ties to Brandon here. But, Actually, uh, we only, you're only getting one. All right, fine. I'll, 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 I'll throw props out to, to Nick Watkins. Loved playing with him. Played with him in travel ball growing up. Third through eighth grade was just a blast to play with him. So, okay. Um, At. Let's save mine for last because none of you guys were named this guy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna save mine for last. How about that, Brandon? Or at least before you go. But I want to hear these others first. Uh, Corey. So was this for people in person that we've seen play, played against, state of Wisconsin? What are our parameters here, BMO? Kenosha. Oh, Kenosha. The best player I've seen in Kenosha. Yep. Uh, well, up close, seen in person was Nick um, Ben Axel. Um, can't repeat it. What, what we can't repeat. So, uh, oh, man, that's a tough one, BMO. Um, in Kenosha. During my time coaching? Sure. Oh, shit. Um, best player I coached at Tremper would have been Derek Griffin for one year, the most talented kid okay. uh, that I coached. The best player in my time at Tremper was Darrell Longstreet. Okay. Uh, Jason Coker. Uh, I'll go ahead and put it up there. Uh, Walt G. Walt Glass. Uh, Greg Leach. I'm sorry, uh, Seth Young. I'm ready. Okay, go ahead, Greg. <laughs> uh, watched uh, Al Steele. Coached DeMonte Nelson. Uh, Seth Young. Coker took mine. Uh, he didn't get mentioned. Uh, little, uh, little list. Uh, you did your podcast for um, that I watched. Oh man! Watched, seen, heard of, coach, whatever. Best. I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna put this on a limb. It's a family member of mine. I'm just gonna say uh, Dre Speed. What he did as a freshman. I don't think that's going to ever be seen around this area again. Whew. Okay. Uh, Jason, Tanisoff. Uh, for Kenosha that I watched because I got to watch him play close to 100 games, one person I would go with, uh, Brandon Tolfrey or David Morris. <laughs> uh, college, I'll go with Antoine McDaniel. Okay. Uh, A.T. All right. Dun, 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 dun. Since we got to name more than one other people, you know, I'm going to go with our era starting five. How about that? Uh, 
I would say at the five, I'm going to take Isaiah Stokes. At the four, I'm going to take Terry Farmer. At the three, I'm going to take Joe Sebasky. Not Sebasky, what's the other one? Ah. Good name? uh, Never mind. We'll throw Scratch. We'll throw, we'll let Farmer run run the three. And I'll throw Sidney Cooks into the, I'll throw Sidney Cooks in there. I think that's one of Kenosha's best hoopers of all time, to be honest. I think her name should be on the list. And then at the two, we're going to go uh, free, for sure, David Tolfrey. And at the one, we'll go with, uh, I'll give you the honors, Brandy. You held it down in Kenosha for our era at the one. Um, then honorable mention, no, I'm just playing. I'm not going to keep going. <laughs> I think that's a good representative of our era right there, which okay. is, I would say, from probably like 99 to about 2003. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. it's a lot of names. Some names. Did everybody get a chance to go? Got everybody in there? Just Everybody to... but you, Brandon. Oh. That's right. Uh... Al Steele, Walt T, Dre Spear. You know, I'm going to put Jim Lindsay. Beast. Um, so just to, just to go back over these names that you guys threw out here. Uh, hey, he didn't play high school basketball here. He didn't, but he grew up here. So Okay, I'll, I'll take him off. Great point. I'm going to shout out Q Young, too. I know he's going to listen to this at some point. Yeah, toughest, toughest, toughest college player that I did a scout report against was Cordell Young. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Q Young. Hey, Corey, I'm kind of like you on this. Not from Kenosha, so I'm from Kenosha, but spent three years in Kenosha, so it's, it's a hard list. I didn't get to see all these guys that they got to see grow up. Yeah. You know, good point. Um, so. We've reached our we've reached our time, and I wanted you guys, if you can, close it out. Uh, this podcast, you're gonna close it out with one word. We got less than two minutes, so it's one word only. Uh, how are you feeling about this podcast? The time looked like it went way too quick tonight, uh, but one word about how you felt about the podcast. AC, we starting with you. Thankful. Thankful. Michael Holden. It's always great to be on here to um, to listen, glean from knowledge, um, and, and hear different perspectives. Let's hold it one word. So you guys that can't see this, uh, we got about 10 coaches on here. They're all holding up the one finger because they know Michael Holden. Uh, yeah. Anyways, we'll leave it at that. We're going to give him great. Johnny Atkins. Appreciative. Appreciative. That's without the A, I'm assuming. So appreciative, okay? Uh, AT. Uh, inspire. Inspire. Jason. Coker. So Jason Coker is new uh, to the podcast and he's a little shy. But let's get his mic. It's great. 
Say it again. Intriguing. Intriguing. Tanisoff. Knowledge from all you guys soaking it up. Knowledge. Said Young. Knowledge. Say it again. Knowledge. Knowledge. Yes, way. Double up. Corey. Love. Just love. I, I love it. Gregory Leach. Diverse. Say it again. Diverse. Diverse. And I'm going to end it with empowerment. I love it. Um, so we're ending this second part of the segment. Uh, this podcast was amazing. I want to thank all you guys for being a part of it tonight. Uh, I got number love for you guys, spreading your knowledge. Uh, we appreciate you guys again for coming on. Minnesota, we shout out you guys. Uh, Racine, Paris, De Pere, Green Bay area, Kenosha Racing. We appreciate all you guys for jumping on tonight. We'll see you guys real soon. This podcast will be published, and we'll holler back. Godspeed to all of you guys.